0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Jordan Armanese is booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Dear Scott Thompson.
0: It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. 900 CHML. All right, we got another jam-packed show coming up. Lots, uh, lots going on. The prime minister's got his angry voice on. He's uh, he, he's pretty uh, uh, ticked off at uh, the people at Bell. Where do I start? Uh, warmest February 9th in history. Let's start there. Let's start with some warmth. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I think we're breaking records from you know as far back as 1938 or so. Uh, in the hammer right now, uh, my little phone's telling me 14 degrees. Man, <laughs> meet you down at the lake. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, beautiful out there. And, of course, Super Bowl weekend, so everybody's getting jazzed up about that. Uh, so it's uh, lots going on. And then... All of a sudden, uh, there was an announcement today, and this was the Prime Minister and the Premier, Doug Ford, uh, together making a announcement on healthcare and such, and, and we'll get to that in just a second. But, uh, you know, as always happens in these affairs, they get up and they do their little spiel and such, and then they have a little Q&A uh, thing, and of course, uh, the Prime Minister gets asked about uh, the whole issue at Bell, and 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 uh, the the radio stations being lost, and the people that are being fired, and, and it, you know, it's just it you know, terrible story. So we're going to play you a series of clips. Here is the prime minister commenting on all of that.
1: This is a garbage decision by a corporation that should know better. We have seen over the past years journalistic outlets. Radio stations, small community newspapers bought up by corporate entities who then lay off journalists, you know, change the offering, the quality of offering to people. And then when people don't watch as much or engage as much, the corporate entity says, oh, see, they're not profitable anymore. We're going to sell them off. This is the erosion, not just of journalism, of quality local journalism, at a time where people need it more than ever, given misinformation and disinformation. But it's eroding our very democracy. Our abilities to tell stories to each other of how people's lives are, stories that reflect our own communities and not central offices in our biggest cities, is part of what binds this country together from coast to coast to coast. And over the past years, Corporate Canada, and there are many culprits on this, have abdicated their responsibility toward the communities that they have always made very good profits off of in various ways. Canadians need to demand better, as we will be demanding better, from corporate leaders, like in this case, Bell, that are eroding Canadians' ability to know each other, to trust each other and to trust in the country and the future we are building together. So, yeah, I'm pretty pissed off about what's just happened. All right, there you go. And, um,
0: uh, I've never seen him as passionate as when CBC does stuff, but I get it. And, you you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you as someone who's made their living in this business for 40 years and, um, hanging on like the rest of us, Uh, there's what he said was true, but I'm not sure anything he has done is helping it or any of the other governments. But again, is it up to them or is it up to the companies that are involved here? And, uh, where do you go from here? What's this another crisis? And again, this is something that we certainly, uh, I think saw coming in many predicted that that it it would. And, and here we are Uh, a passionate response from the prime minister. um, But again, you know, you just, what do you, what do you do? And, and, and picking fights with social media giants and all of a sudden traditional media is not allowed on their sites, thus shrinking the exposure. That's not helping. So, you know, well, you're arguing with uh, Meta and Facebook, you know, stuff on Canadian media sites isn't getting on the Internet, isn't getting on those social media sites, certainly getting on the Internet. So, you know, there's certainly enough uh, blame to go around here. But uh, let's talk about some positive news and where all of this uh, sort of came from. And that was an announcement in regard to funding. Uh, the, uh, the Prime Minister and the Premier are together today in, in King City talking about health care and more money coming into Ontario's health care system. Here's what the Premier had to say. To another example
2: of our two governments coming together to get things done, whether it's combating auto thefts, attracting mega investments, being the EV plants or improving health
0: care, we've shown that political stripes don't matter. Wow. You know, in all of this hell and chaos that's going on, there's good old DOFO. Not playing the political game. Not spouting for any political party. Just getting the job done. Just getting her done. And, you know, uh, again, we we live in a world of extreme politics. It's extreme left or it's extreme right. And we've lost the center. And people wonder why Doug Ford is popular. It's uh, certainly not amongst the extremists, though. So, you know, an interesting day. We'll talk about it over the course of the afternoon. In all of this, well... Uh, Jugmeet Singh of the NDP is just saber rattling the libs again uh, on PharmaCare and, and now pressuring still like, like that's what the prime minister needs. I got the health care crisis. I got the housing crisis. I got the international student crisis. We're throwing gallons of gasoline on all of it. And you're you're rattling my cage over PharmaCare. Uh, it's a difficult time to be the prime minister or any canadian for that matter you know, it's interesting how when you get into a crisis situation in one uh, uh, category, we'll say, or one area, uh, it often triggers something else in another, whether it's, uh, you know, it's going back to a population. And and we certainly know that we need uh, more and more people coming into Canada in order to fill labor positions and a lowering of, a, of fertility rate. Uh, but then when it becomes too much, it over overextends health care, as we're seeing, and creating a housing or contributing to, certainly not creating, contributing to a housing crisis, which now we're seeing a cap on that. But as soon as you start pushing back on foreign labor or on students and such, uh, then all of a sudden we create a labor shortage. It enhances that even more. So to talk more about all of this and and how we move forward, Armin Yalnizan with us, economist and Atkinson fellow with the future of workers in here now. Armin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
3: I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me on your show, Scott. Uh,
0: so obviously, I think it's no secret there's a labor shortage, my goodness, especially post-pandemic. You see hiring signs pretty much everywhere, uh, probably in well was a trend prior to uh, the pandemic. Now, with what we're seeing in shifts in policy and policy and such, how is that rippling through uh, labor and, and shortages and such?
3: Well, since the pandemic began, almost a million people have tripped over the wire from under 65 to over 65. And while there are more people taking early retirement and more people working later, the average age of retirement still is 65. And so when StatCan announced today that we added about a million people to the working age population, that's people aged 15 and older. We're just basically replacing the people that are exiting. The labor market, right. whereas the economy itself is bigger. So we continue to have labor shortages in key industries like hospitality, transportation, and of course, the mother of it all, healthcare. care.
0: Um, and when you, you talk about the employment rate being historically low, how does all of that balance out? Because many are, and is that, is that overshadowed by the growth that you're, that, that we're seeing? Because again, many can't remember unemployment rates being as low as they are.
3: Yeah, it is the unemployment rate that is at historic lows. And for people aged 25 to 54, which is what we call the prime age workforce, we've never seen such high employment rates for women. This is childbearing aged women and women with fairly young kids, and uh, they're working more than ever before. And there's no indication that that's going to plateau, even though childcare is such a disaster in this province, notwithstanding the attempt to improve affordability and accessibility by the federal government's deals. So this is all part of the slowest moving train on the planet, which is called demographics. And it's a result Mm. here, as in the United States and any country that had a baby boom after the Second World War, it's a result of the working age population aging. And the only way you keep it kind of refreshed and able to meet the needs is by uh, adding newcomers. And those newcomers come in two flavors, permanent residents and temporary foreign workers and international students. And we've been leaning much more heavily on newcomers to fill the gaps that aging workers and workers that are exiting the labor force, I mean, you mentioned it before, not only do we have more people exiting the labor force because they're reaching retirement age, but for decades now we've had falling Birth rates. So 96% of all the growth in the working age population is coming from newcomers. And for the first time in our history of a nation of immigrants, we're leaning very heavily on a temporary foreign workforce that is designed to be cheap. And, you know, we're just starting to see signs of the federal government waking up, you know, waking up and smelling the coffin that it built. It created its Mm own dynamic that it is now starting to walk back by capping the number of of international students. But we will continue to see labor shortages, as you mentioned right at the top, partly because of demographics and partly because uh, the economy is now bigger than it was before the pandemic. We've added a lot of people to the economy and we need more services and uh, they just aren't there.
0: Population increase too drastic, too much too soon, as opposed to a balance, therefore putting pressure on housing, healthcare. I mean, I don't ever remember. I guess this has always been a concern, but I don't ever remember being at the point where, you know, we got to slow down uh, the pace of immigration because of a housing crisis. I, I don't remember ever saying that.
3: Yeah, and nor have we ever had the type of affordability crisis in housing that we are seeing now, because, you know, in 2008-9, after the global financial crisis, virtually every central bank in the advanced economies, including Canada, dropped interest rates to close to 0%, if not 0%. In fact, in places like Japan, interest rates went negative. They were paying you to save. So, you know, we are we we saw about 20 years of these distortionary uh sorry 15 years of these distortionary interest rate policies creating housing to be basically you know if you had any equity you could borrow money for free and buy more yeah. equity housing became an asset you know we we blame the foreigners a lot. And it's true that Canada was a fire sale, bargain priced housing market. But it's also true that a lot of people that had a bit of equity bought more equity by borrowing at close to zero borrowing costs. And so housing became an asset rather than a thing that you need to survive. And consequently, rents shot up everywhere.
0: So how do we get back to a rebalance? How do we move forward from this?
3: Well, we're doing it all. It just is not going to happen quickly because we dug ourselves into such a hole. We did not plan for the utterly predictable shortages in labor that would have existed without the pandemic shutting down an economy and then trying to reopen it after the pandemic was so-called over. Um, But, you know, the the knowledge that the construction industry and skilled trades is demographically old. Uh, sector of the economy has been with us for over a decade, maybe 15 Mm. years. Same thing with nurses and doctors. These two sectors of the economy were demographically old and we did nothing to prepare for this moment where we are understaffed because we are undertrained. Uh, And we are starting to train more people through apprenticeship. We are starting to open up pathways to reducing the costs of training in healthcare. Mm. All of these things are good, but they're not going to happen overnight. We, we started to open up uh, intake of newcomers, which is important. We need them, as you said, at the top. Yeah. Uh, the critical thing now will be to create pathways to permanence because these are not temporary labor shortages that we are facing. And these people should not be, you know, when you come in On a temporary permit, you're very open to be exploited. You have the same labor rights as anybody else on paper, but it's very difficult to exercise them without being deported if you complain. So there's lots of things going on and we are in the process of, you know, dialing it back on how we treat workers and Cranking it up when it comes to adding supply, but we are at a very, very difficult place. And, you know, it really does depend on what we expect of our governments going forward, what we will end up with.
0: Armin Yalnizan with us, economist and Atkinson's fellow with the future of workers, talking about the labor shortage that uh, we're seeing everywhere. Armin, thanks for the time. Be well.
3: Thank you very much, and good luck to you
0: in all of the uh uh politics and, and stuff of the day uh, earlier today and we're certainly hearing lots of comment from the prime minister today but this started as a meeting between he or a news conference between he and uh, uh the uh Premier. What's his name? Oh, yeah. Doug Ford and 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 new announcements for money. And I think it's like three point one billion dollars for Ontario. And this is interesting because of where we are in the healthcare care system uh, in, in trying to fix it in a post COVID-19 world. Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, author of When Politics Comes, Bef- uh, Comes Before Patients, Why and How Can- uh, Canadian Medicare is Failing and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you. So I remember talking during the pandemic, we got to fix this. And then coming out of it, we uh, met with the prime ministers and the or the prime minister and the premiers. And we started moving forward. Then there was sort of like a population explosion and then ERs got filled again. And now it sort of feels like we're back to where we were. Now there's this announcement. How do you digest all of this, Sean? What are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, so. um it's hard to do it in in less than an hour, but we'll try to do it in five minutes. Yeah. So first of all, when the federal government gives you money, the first thing you say is "thank you very much, Mr. Prime Minister." Three point one yeah. billion, and you saw that come through in the press conference uh, with Premier Ford. Um, the the concerns I have though is uh, what what is the message here? Number number one, it's not a gigantic number. It's spread out over three years. Billion yeah. is a big number, but when it comes to healthcare spending, we're well over three hundred billion in, in Canada. year as you know but what concerns me is the focus on control so we have the feds once again dictating to the provinces you need to number one expand healthcare teams well we know it costs 60 percent more per patient that enrolled in those teams number two open 700 spots well that's not going to make a dent in the 2.3 million people without a family doc and i can unpack those numbers if you want and then number three the third thing is to uh, improve tracking and reporting of health system data, upgrading the digital infrastructure in hospitals. Well, that in itself is like a massive five-year project. So it blows my mind that the feds think they can dictate this, but the provinces are strapped for cash. So they say, thank you very much. We'll take your money.
0: Uh, It almost sounds like the housing crisis. It's where do you start? How do you get ahead? How do you even begin to catch up?
4: Well, um, the fascinating thing to me is that this is more central planning to fix a problem caused by central planning. But and wait so a second. Let me,
0: let me interrupt you there, Sean, because that's okay. what pharmacare and dental care is. Because many, I've talked to many of those provincial associations and they said, you know, we've got great dental plans. It's just that we don't have the money to fund them to reach these people. And now we're creating a separate plan. Is that
4: what you're speaking of? Well, partly too, you know, we can dive into the pharmacare care stuff if you want. So uh, the average retail plan has over 11,000 drugs covered. So the one you get with your job or off the shelf, um, whereas the, the provincial plan that they floated was around, if I remember correctly, 2,300 to 3,000, maybe just north of 3,000 different drugs. So 11,000 drugs versus 3,000 drugs. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, if you were on a stable drug with your private plan, you had to actually come off of that drug, try... One of the drugs that was covered by the provincial plan before you actually had a special dispensation to go back on the one that actually was keeping you alive. So lots of weirdness there as well. Um, but yeah, we can go down those trails if you want or keep focusing on this uh, $3.1 billion.
0: Yeah, let's do that for now. Uh we could be on for an hour exactly as you said. <laughs> and maybe we should we should clear that space off in the future. So, um we we certainly know that we're in, in you know hearing the same problems that we heard during the pande- uh, pandemic with not enough people getting a family doc, uh filling up the ERs. Is this a band-aid solution to that? Will we see progress?
4: there. Well, again, it's easy to be negative. So we should try to look at the positive. They talked about 700 new spots for medical education. We should all cheer. Yahoo! That's awesome. Now, Put that into perspective. So, those 700 spots are going to be divided up between undergrad medical students and postgrad. So, let's say family practice training. So, really, you're only talking about 350 new bodies. And even if all of those new bodies went in and practiced full time family practice, like we're talking 1500 patients minimum, you're looking at an 11 to 15 year lag time just to cover the 2.3 million people who don't have family. Uh, docs right now in Can- in Ontario, not including all the new people coming to Canada, not include or Ontario rather, and not including all the people who are retiring. So, yes, nice to see you know a bit more, a few more training spots. But we got to be realistic. You 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 still left us in a hole for another ten to fifteen years. So post pandemic,
0: during pandemic, we were supposed to fix. Are we moving towards that? Uh, uh, what
4: should we be doing? And, and what should we have learned from all of this? Yeah, you think we would have learned. Uh, Certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, it was fascinating to watch the all hands on deck approach. Basically, the central uh, planners said, we don't, you know, we're going to be hit by this thing in the next week. Everybody in your local communities find ways to provide care. So they pulled ventilators out of storage and they put makeshift places and makeshift spaces for ICU Mm -hmm. care called all the people in the community, said, hey, you need to be on standby. Maybe we're going to need your help in the hospital. And so that all hands on deck approach was really cool. It was innovative. It's not the way we approach providing care in Canada. And the central issue is it costs far more to provide care than to ration care. And so when we get into these pseudo peace times, um, as long as wait times aren't creating a political problem, the politicians will say, well, we'll do a little here, do a few billion here, do a deal there. And as long as we're not getting too much political blowback, we'll let things go. What I think is we need a gentle experimentation. It'd be nice to have a fundamental redesign, but at least a gentle experimentation with some different ways of providing care. And we've got lots of smart people in Canada. We can do it. And we can let some gentle innovation happen and we don't have to be stuck in our in our one size fits all approach. Different ways means private, Sean. You know that red flag's gonna go up. <laughs> whoop, whoop, so whoop. so private, private, everybody th- when we talk about private in Canada, we think credit card versus OHIP card. And that's yeah. all we care about. But private means a lot more than how you pay for it. It means how you pay, but also price volume management type of service where the service is provided who manages that service which customers can come into that particular organization and or not so when you mention private it's a gigantic definition and we have such a narrow definition of oh my gosh are we talking about dollars and cents or on your on your Visa card versus mm-hmm. your ohip card you know what let ohip Pay for the whole thing. I don't care, but let's have a a discussion about all the other aspects of private. So for example, volume, type of services, management of those services. Let's talk about getting some real robust um, freedom and opportunity to innovate and be creative and meet patient needs with those other factors, and then leave the actual dollars and cents to the end. But the left side of the political spectrum doesn't want us to have that discussion. They want to talk about dollars and cents first. And we all said during the pandemic, the status quo is not working
0: yet. Here we are. Uh, Dr. Sean Watley with us, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Sean, as always, we'll chat again. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Uh, been some interesting changes to the Ontario curriculum added, uh, uh, been announced over the last little while, and there's another one uh, this week. Adding Ontario, adding the province of Ontario, adding mandatory Black History learning to grade seven, eight, and ten history courses uh, in the future. To talk more about all of this, Patrice Barnes is with us, parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Education, Stephen Leche, and here now, Patrice. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
5: I am well, Scott. I hope you are as well.
0: So why is this happening now? Explain the changes.
5: Well, it's happening now, long overdue, as uh, we've gotten some really good feedback from communities about that, the fact that, you know, they're so happy that this is being done. And so what is being done is an additional to having Black history added to the existing Canadian curriculum. And so what will be, that will be is, Um, 18th century to the 20th century pre-Confederation. That will be throughout the uh, elementary years. And then in grade 10, you get post-World War II. So these are already being taught. So what is just being added is um, the existence of Black people that actually served during that time.
0: And do you think Canadians will be surprised of how deep this history is?
5: I think they will be. A lot of this history is sort of held within the community. And so I think a lot of Canadians will be surprised. I, you know, since doing this, we've talked about Matthew de Costa that was here in 1604. A lot of people wouldn't have thought that somebody was here mm. that was black was here from 1604. So the the history does run deep. Uh, there's certain parts in in Ontario that you know are parts of the Underground Railroad for sure that mm. have their own specific piece of of history.
0: And, you know, m- much like, you know, you're talking about the Underground Railroad and and, and much like a, a Canadians rediscovering or discovering their indigenous history, this is all a part of Canadian history that perhaps was missing for generations as far as being part of the curriculum.
5: It has. It has. And even when I've talked and even the interviews that we've done the last few days, a lot of people have said that we've, you know, I went to school, I studied history and I had no idea that, yeah. you know, we had black people in Canada pre, pre-nation, pre right? So And yeah. even the whole history
0: of the Underground Railway and Canada's yeah. enrollment in slavery, all of that. I mean, you all know, I think those. Canadians sort of have an American view of that or they look at America for, for that story.
5: And that is very true. A lot of the people that are taught about or spoken about, even during Black History Month, are often U.S.-based. So, you know, you have yeah. Malcolm X, you have Rosa Parks. So a lot of those stories mm-hmm. are very American-based. And so we miss out on the 30,000 people that came to Canada in the Underground Railroad and where they ended up and what they did. And the fact that, you know... Um, there was slavery. Slavery wasn't abolished until 1864 in Canada. So there's so many things that are missing that haven't been taught.
0: How do you cram all of this in? What has to be readjusted to make room for this? Does anything?
5: Well, that's the, the question that I've been asked. But no, if you're looking at, it's just a reframing of Canadian history to add yeah. a voice that has not been there from before. So if we we're still. T- teaching about the 18th century to the 20th century. We're still teaching right. about pre-Confederation. All we're saying is that, you know, there's another perspective, another voice that was here during that time.
0: And what about, who would have contributed to this? What sort of feedback did you get? Uh, and, and how do you design curriculum? Where do you, what stories do you tell?
5: Well, we have put a call out to historians and educators, uh, because edu- some educators have been doing this work in school boards for a long time, and it's been Mm -hmm. a very strong advocacy from Black community for a long time. So there is information out there. And so as a ministry, we've put out a call for people that would be interested from the community um, to share the history that they know and have and to be a part of that consultation and writing period um, as we're not rolling out until September 2025.
0: Patrice Barnes with us, Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce. Ontario adding mandatory black history learning to grades 7, 8, and 10 history courses. Patrice, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
5: Thank you, and same to you, Scott. Have a great day.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
6: delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, uh, great article by Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. uh, Trudeau Foundation probe, can't rule out possibility Chinese donations part of influence scheme targeting Ottawa. This goes way back when, and an update on this story, but also as often happens when we have great guests, on so many other stories evolve and you wonder if you're ever going to get the opportunity to talk about what you originally thought. Let's bring in Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief, Globe and Mail. Robert, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Fine. Uh, Robert, I have to ask you off, uh, off the top, what are your thoughts about what has happened at uh, Bell? You know, a lot of us have enjoyed watching you and various panels on on shows there and such. Uh, your thoughts and in, in the Prime Minister's response today.
2: Well, look, it's uh... It's very sad to see so many of uh, colleagues that I respected and worked with when I was the bureau chief at C D V lose their jobs. Um, You know, also a lot of the people who were laid off were women of color, and and uh, you know we've been and and not just women of color, but there were a lot of women of color, but but men of color as well. As you know, news leaders have been trying since Black Lives Matters to diversify their the newsrooms, so that we were more reflective of Canadian society and uh, Bell has taken a step backward in that regard. I think the quality of the journalism is going to suffer too because except for outside of Ottawa and um, outside of the Ottawa Bureau and uh, in Toronto um, everybody is going to have to be a, VG, uh, a VJ uh, so it's they're going to have to do their own shooting and, and uh, uh, editing and Reporting um, now, it's certainly going to save the company a lot of money, but it's very, very hard to do kind of quality quality journalism when you're having to do everything. Um, yeah. So that's going to have a big effect. Now, I will say, um, obviously, uh, I don't like the way uh, Bell handled this, but they are facing. Um, sub- even though they make a lot of money, uh, the news business is going through uh, what the print media went through have been going through and still going through, but you know the advertisers are not advertising anymore on on, on radio or uh, television. And they're going to uh, social media and people are cutting the cables. so they are they're in a uh, they are, are in a real bind and they're trying to figure a way out of this, and they had to, uh, it's been forcing job cuts, which we've seen everywhere in the media, which is bad for Canadian democracy bad for our citizens, so that they can be informed, particularly in smaller communities where they don't have uh, newspapers anymore, and now they're not going to probably have uh, you know reporters, so a television reporters. So it's it's a it's a sad day. It's just a sad day for Canada. For Canada.
0: Is this all technology, Robert, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, obviously you can do things with more and and, uh, or sorry, with less. And you were talking about the VJs, that sort of thing. Um, But, but, uh, you know, that's progress. Things happen. How did we get here? Could we have got to a different place even with the technology that we have? Did we approach this the right way?
2: Well, certainly in the print media, they didn't uh, years ago because they were putting their content up for nothing uh was free, and uh, people got used to it didn't want to pay for subscriptions. Now, some uh, publications, uh, most publications have all gone to uh, behind the pay roll, pay, uh, paywall, and the Globe is doing okay, um, fortunately, because it's sort of national in scope, and we have a report on business, so business people buy it, and quality of journalism is very high, and so people will pay for it. So Philip Crawley, who was the publisher at the time, he just retired, uh, it was very smart to say we're not going to go down market. We're not going to fire people. We're we're going to be cost conscious, obviously, but we're going to try to keep quality because people will pay for quality. And that's the danger that you have. We've seen this with the with the post media. They've cut jobs so much that the quality of the um, of their news product is pretty weak. And and who wants to subscribe to something when you're not getting very much? And that's the danger that's going to happen. Uh, to uh, um television as well, if they, if the quality of the journalism goes down, well why watch it? And mm-hmm. but you know they haven't figured out a model yet um, that's going to work because people are you and I know our kids don't don't have kids yeah. yeah, it's all on their phones. so we, they have to figure out a model that obviously has to be subscription based. Uh, which we're seeing in the sports world they do they're doing very well, but you know, you can watch it on your on your phone, but you're gonna have to pay for it. So they are gonna have to move to some kind of a model where if you want news, uh, you're gonna have to, you know, you're gonna have to pay for it. Um, but it's gonna have to be quality, otherwise you're not gonna pay for it
0: uh always a battle between traditional and digital medium the the challenge of both as progress as time moves forward Uh, did traditional media rely on social media instead of marketing their own sites now it seems because we're not on facebook anymore that now the word is to drive people to the website well that's how this all started and then we kind of stopped
2: yeah i mean look uh the government, I mean, Trudeau was on today, uh, acting like, I think he saw that Dave Premier, BC Premier David Eby, yeah. uh, got a lot of positive response when he came out and criticized the bail cuts. So I think he thought, let's see if I can up him on this. But let's, you know, he, he's responsible for, for some of this stuff too. I mean, the government has allowed, um, C- C- CBC, which gets $1.3 billion from Canadian taxpayers to take advertising revenue that should be going to, The private sector, uh, which do not have billions of a a billion or more dollars of Mm -hmm. federal support. I mean, he's responsible for losing uh, Facebook out of this country, and you know, Facebook uh, drove a lot of uh, a lot of readers to our websites and to you know your radio station and all of that sort of stuff. So, uh, I mean, they're not the these tech giants are not going to go away. We have to figure out a way to help. To use them to help monetize and drive subscribers or viewers to or readers to us or viewers to us, and then get them to buy subscriptions. So, there, you know, I, I you know, I'm being a, it sounds like I'm being negative, but I'm actually in some ways optimistic that, you know, I think there's going to be, you know, we've lost, for example, we're losing in medium-sized cities and smaller smaller communities. We've lost uh, the newspapers, but I'm I think there may be an opportunity for young entrepreneurs to come up with a model where if I live in, uh, you know, Belleville or Ottawa or whatnot, uh, I may will be willing to pay for uh, an online uh, subscription for a news organization that's willing to tell me about, you know, what's going on at City Hall, what shows mm-hmm. are playing at the movie or what's going on at an art gallery, uh, what's the Facilities are, are going on, what's going on in sports, in local sports, like my kids are playing in. There's an opportunity here, uh, but the government, the only way that the government can play a role, but it shouldn't be handing uh, money to, in my view, to news organizations. It could do it different ways. If I want to get a subscription uh, to the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star, uh, why can't I get a tax deduction for doing that? That keeps the government away from trying to influence media organizations with by like, providing lump sums of money, uh, or you know, or if advertisers decide to advertise in Canadian publications, why can't they get a tax break? Let's be creative about trying to um, revive. Uh, uh, it'll obviously have to be online That's the future because we get all our news on on uh, our iPhones now. Uh, but let's figure out a way that. That we can get our bring funds funding to our, our our news organizations without the heavy hand of the government, because as soon yeah. as they start providing large sums of money to you, uh, publishers, are going to when you get get critical of them, they're they're going to get worried because oh my goodness, they may withdraw the money.
0: Mm.
2: With, with taxes, with tax breaks like that, it's a little it's it's much different because it applies yeah. to everybody.
0: Robert Fife with us, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Never got to the Trudeau Foundation, but a great discussion about the state of media in Canada. Robert, always thanks so much for the time. Uh, Keep digging. Thank you. 900 CHML, it's Hamilton today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I want to bring in Richard Brennan, uh, former journalist with the Toronto Star, covering both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Lots of stuff to talk about, whether it's new nanos, polls, or just the uh, uh, the news coming out of uh, Bell Media and the Prime Minister's comments. Richard Brennan is with us, former journalist with the Toronto Star, covering both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Richard, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Yourself? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Richard. It's one of those days where we book a guest to talk about a story and then there's other stuff going on. I'm not sure what we're going to get to. So let's start with the one that and I think we told you the opposite (laughs) off air. But let's talk about the nanos projections, uh, the liberals and uh, not uh, doing as well in large cities like the Vancouver's Toronto's of the area. Montreal, I guess, a given for them. But what are your thoughts just on this?
7: uh right now i don't find uh, it nano surprising i mean you just have to talk to people in the streets there they uh i don't know so much of they're they're fed up with the liberals as they are just they're just sick and tired of uh, trudeau and 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 i'm not saying that in any uh, kind of offensive way i'm just saying he's been around a long time uh we've we saw it with Brian Mulrooney, uh we may hmm. see it again and and that's what that's what it is people have just grown tired of the guy you know, they liked him when they elected him, you know, you know, eight years ago. And uh, now they say, hey, time for somebody else, a- anybody else, basically.
0: Many have asked if he will step down. Of course, we've heard no, uh, to give the party some sort of fighting chance and, and a runway before the next election. Is there a timetable here, do you think, uh, Richard? We keep hearing spring that, you know, by spring he'll know or they'll know.
7: Well, if he, if he's going to step down, like you said, he has to. There's gotta be some runway for the new leader, whoever that might be, but uh I don't know he's his uh he, he really dislikes uh Polly and you know and vice versa. so that may keep him in the game, but I think he'll do so at the detriment of the party because right now he is he is the you know the weight around the party's neck right now. If if he if he stays, uh, you know, it it could well be a tsunami. I know the liberals are good at, uh, you know, at campaigning. You, you don't you yeah. know, take that away from him. But right now, it just looks so bad for him. And I, I, I can't imagine it being turned around by him to any, you
0: know, big way. So is there any senior person in the party that's going to tell him or has these conversations with him? Well, that's the trouble,
7: Scott. I think he's I think he has surrounded himself, and I get this from party insiders, that he'd surrounded himself with yes people. Yeah. That's the worst thing you can do as a politician is surround yourself with yes people. You've got to somebody have somebody that speaks truth to power. And I'm not so sure that there is that person there. And again, this is the time where somebody should be, you know, somebody, with a senior person in the party and whoever that might be, says, you know, uh, Justin, you might want to think about uh, moving on, take a walk in the snow like your father did because uh, things aren't looking good.
0: What about his comments today in regard to uh, the Bell Media case? He certainly has been out front and center with a lot of announcements lately. You can certainly tell there's a new comms person there. They're they're trying to refocus. What are your thoughts on the comments he made today in regard to Bell?
7: About him being pissed off at Bell?
0: Is that the correct? Yeah.
7: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, just putting my cynicism aside from the moment, I don't disbelieve him when he said this because this is not new. He's He has come to the defense of local media before. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's, you know, I think it's a bona fide comment. Uh, you know, if, if Paul had said it, I, pro- I probably would have fainted. Uh, <laughs> but when Trudeau says it, it's not, it's, you know, he has said it before. It's not coming out of left field.
0: That being said, um a person whose own house is in quite a shambles right now, crisis after crisis after crisis. I think that was the way uh, perhaps it was meant.
7: You mean his party, or no? The criticism—the
0: criticism, the criticism of, of of him for saying what he said. Many are saying, "Like that sounds great." And I mean, I listened to what he said; it sounded perfect. It was it was bang on, but yeah. coming from a person who has so many other fires burning uh, in his own house, who has a hard time with the crisis of the day, well, uh, with he, his in, in his own party.
7: Well, look at Trudeau could get go on live TV and say good morning, and there'd be people out there and say. What the heck are you talking about? It's not a good morning. You know, I mean, it it doesn't matter what he says at this point. I mean, he's got so many naysayers and and you know the rabid you know haters, if you will, out there. Uh, It's it's to the point where it doesn't matter what he says. But this this was a legitimate comment. This we should all be ticked off, if you will, because money our tax dollars have gone into um, local journalism and and CTV has been, you know, has been a party to that. And, and now they've just said, well, well, we took your money, but uh too bad. We've got to get we've we've got to get rid of these people and we've got to get rid of these radio stations and TV stations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Bell Media is not a good employer by any stretch stretch of the imagination. When I was a kid, this is going way back when the earth was still cooling. Um, Bell was the place to work at. Yeah. But I'll tell you. You know anybody that works in Bell or in Meteor or otherwise, boy, they've got nothing but negative things to say about the company.
0: Uh, Maybe one positive out of this that I've seen too, Richard, is that if these end up, some of these outlets, whether it's radio stations, um, what have you, end up in the hands of local owners or smaller owners, that seems to be, you know, and obviously technology plays a massive part here, but it seems when, uh, you know, the big corps came in and bought up all the the smaller companies, instead of getting rid of the old infrastructure and keeping the people, they did the reverse, which has got us to where we are. Is there some hope for you that, um, you know, with smaller local operators, this can this can become viable. It's the message, oh, not it's the I, message, I not the great. medium,
7: right? Uh, you know, we we uh, it made return to yesteryear, where where you you know like your station and others, you know, where you turn on the news and you get news, and you're t- told about what's happening locally. You know, like when I when I was a kid, you know, in Branford at CKPC, I mean, you hmm. got on. You know, you, everybody had, every home in Brantford had the, the AM uh, station at that time and, and on at their home. And yeah. you got the local news. You find out what, you found out what the local sports was, what, what, what what you know, what, where the kids should be going to school or not because of the snowstorm, all those good things. And I'll tell you, if it, that is, comes to, re, you know, returns and that people locally buy up these stations, I think it is the best thing that could possibly happen.
0: It'll be interesting to see how it does move forward, but I think there's certainly a balance there because there is a demand for local. I mean, during the pandemic, it was all about shopping local. Do we think the same thing about media?
7: Absolutely. People, people, you know, despite what you might hear uh, south of the border or some of the critics here, people want to get their local news. They want to find out what's, what's happening, you know, and, in, in, you know, arts and entertainment they want to find out what's particularly the sports scores. You know, the, what the the local uh, baseball team is, how they're doing, the tie cats, or whatever. They just want to know what's going on in their own community, and 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 many of those stations that uh, existed, that wasn't happening. It was it was happening, you know, to a certain extent, but not the kind of hyper local information that I think people want aside from national and international news.
0: Richard Brennan with us, former journalist with the Toronto Star, covering both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill, the state of Canadian media today. Richard, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
1: Okay, thanks, Scott. This is a garbage decision by a corporation that should know better. We've seen over the past years, journalistic outlets, radio stations, small community newspapers bought up by corporate entities who then lay off journalists, you know, change the offering, the quality of offering to people. And then when people don't watch as much or engage as much, the corporate entity says, oh, see, they're not profitable anymore. We're going to sell them off.
0: You know, we've been talking with various guests over the course of the afternoon, and we all seem to come to this subject. So it seems like we've been talking about it all day. Uh, but we're gonna continue to. Uh in case you haven't heard, Bell Canada slashed uh a bazillion jobs. This is this is across all levels, including like a hundred the source stores and, and what have you, but also affects radio, including here in Hamilton with our uh, our friends up on the hill and such. So uh I wanna bring in somebody who used to work right here. And, uh, you know, back in the day when I think we had like 100 employees, uh, Gina Lawrence, I don't know if she still uses that name, former CHML journalist, professor at broadcast journalism and coordinator with the Fanshawe College uh, program up in London and is with us now. Gina, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
6: Hi, how are you doing, Scott? I'm doing
0: very well. It's so great to talk to you again.
6: So great to be back on CHML. I, I'm sure nobody remembers my time there, but it was so wonderful. Those nine years that I was there and we won't say when that not was, but anyhow. Every,
0: everybody remembers. We should have sent up a newscast for you to read just for fun. Come oh, on, give us a weather. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So obviously, this is pretty hard to digest. Yeah. And, and you know, we've all been in this long enough to know, uh, you know, where we are and such. Um, I guess my question is, could this have been avoided? We all hear about, you know, technology is just doing this. Technology is driving all of this. But is it the technology or is it our reaction to it? Do you think we could have done this a bit more delicately than what we're seeing?
6: It's a big question. And we have a big company with Bell, right? And and other big companies owning a lot of properties. And it's hard to do everything well when you are a big mm. company. And where are you putting your resources, your attention, all of that? Um, and these conversations in terms of the ad revenue... And where that's been going, obviously, with digital, with Google and meta, etc. So I I think it's a big problem. We already know consumption habits have been shifting for a long time. So I don't know, did it have to be this big and this timing, etc. I don't know, but I do think that there's still a lot of life and hope left moving forward because there are a lot of industry players who are really interested in doing good local programming and content.
0: And it'll be interesting, too, is once we get some of the big players out of the way, what it looks like when we get more niche ownership involved and will it bring that back? Um, Obviously, you have faith in the local aspect of all this.
6: I mean, I've worked in small markets, obviously big market with Hamilton, et cetera. Um, and it is different. Depend Like every market has a certain flavor and personality to it, right? And it's like, if you have any business, you need to tailor to what the consumer would like to have. Yeah. And so possibly by having some smaller ownership of some of the radio stations that have been divested by Bell. I think that there are some opportunities that are going to be happening and that maybe there will be um, a little bit more attention potentially to (laughs) what is the flavor of this local market and how are we going to serve them
0: and we should also say that you know when we say radio everybody goes, radio radio who to radio? well it, 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 this is content it's it's you know a method of distribution wow. always changes from you know rabbit ears to cable to satellites to whatever so it's the same message it's just delivered uh, differently let me ask you this because again you were sort of part of this when there was lots of transition going on and such and it seems when 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 the internet first came out and social media it was all about promoting our website and drive people to the website because we've got all of our stuff now all on the website as well as on the air. Then it was social media came into the picture. Well, let's just piggyback on social media. And of course, they learned how to monetize it and we gave them the content. And now that, you know, places like Facebook don't, you know, won't put our stuff on their sites anymore, now we're driving everybody back to the website. I think we missed an opportunity way back when.
6: Well, I think hindsight is always much better for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that. There are some new studies coming forward that the that with Meta and Facebook and Instagram people are going to the originating source now that mm-hmm. if you want good storytelling and you want to double check hey is what I'm really seeing true or what what's going on and I think that there's a, still a big space for that now the who's going to be paying for that will advertisers return what will that look like are there opportunities to Um, do some innovative multimedia, multi-platform things? Because like you said, radio is just one aspect of it. No radio station is just doing radio, nor is any media outlet. So I think Mm -hmm. it's just really, how do we get creative and engage our audience? What is it that that we can feel this connection and trust with one another and be out in the community?
0: All right, so uh, let's end this with a sign-off. Say Gina Lawrence, CHML News, whatever, something like that. Give us one of those.
6: (laughs) All right, Gina Lawrence, CHML News. Oh, we love it. That's
0: Gina Lawrence, former CHML journalist, professor now, broadcast journalism coordinator with Fanshawe College up in London. Gina, a pleasure. Be well.
6: You too. Nice to be here. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton
5: with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's news today's talk 900 uh,
0: We all know that uh, we got another crisis. Do we have a crisis in the house? It's another crisis. Yes, is it housing? No, healthcare? No, groceries? No, affordability? No, international students population growth? No. What is it? It's car theft. Woo way. Um, And, you know, listening to the prime minister and uh, people are going to get so pissed at me for saying this, but listening to the prime minister talk or host a summit on car theft is like having him host a summit on the oil and gas industry. Is it me? Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, author and public affairs consultant. Uh, her latest in the post, Tasha Carradine, Polyev's promised car thief crackdown, a reckoning for Trudeau. Tasha with us now. Thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
8: I am, Scott. Beep, beep.
0: isn't it a little odd hearing the tough on crime language from Trudeau at this point?
8: Well, I think it's, it's not unexpected. It's the same with housing. Um, The conservatives are identifying all the issues out there and the government responds to take the wind out of their sails because they don't want the, they don't want this issue to fester. It has been festering for a while. And they don't want the conservatives to score more points on it. Yeah, they should have dealt with it before. But at the end of the day, how do you deal with it? You do it by doing things they don't want to do, which is yeah. increase penalties, get tough on crime. This government has reduced penalties, made house arrest easier to get, made bail easier to get. All these things add up over time. And yes, the crime rate has increased. Recidivism has increased. And it's because in part of their policy.
0: Uh, is the public reacting to that? Because at one time, he was sort of known as the catch-and-release prime minister. Now, all of a sudden, he's closing the doors.
8: Well, is he really? I mean, you know, uh, Polyev is the one who said that he should increase po- uh, you know, yeah. penalties from six months to three years if you've got three thefts under your belt. Truth, truth, they're looking at it. They're looking at the criminal codes. But they're not. that's not what they're focusing on. They're focusing – in fact, he blamed car companies for making cars that are too easy yeah. to steal. I mean, yeah, come on. Um, it's great to say you're going to crack down on those technolo- the technology that thieves use. It's already illegal. They're getting it on the black market. So it's kind of ridiculous. Port inspections, great. But the goal is to prevent your car from being in that container in the first place. Once it's there, it's a lot more costly also for police and stuff to track it down. Make sure that thieves don't have the incentive to do
3: it first.
0: Well, I was listening to one comment and I'm, you know, obviously this is a multifaceted thing, but, you know, uh, preventing or stopping the sale of those fob uh, copying devices. Well, that's like a handgun, ban. I'm sure the criminals aren't getting it all from Amazon.
8: No, they're not at Costco buying them. Um, No, uh, they are getting them on the black market. And here's the other thing. Uh, There are ways for consumers to protect themselves against this thing. A friend of mine got their car stolen in Montreal, classic. They were there uh, for a weekend. They looked out the window of their hotel. The car was gone. But guess what they had in it? They had an air tag in something in the car. They tracked it down. It was two blocks away in a parking lot. The police said, oh, yeah, that's what they do. They move it, and then someone comes and picks it up. So my friend got his car back uh, (laughs) because he had this. There are simple ways to actually help yourself and I'm not saying that this excuses the, the criminals. I think they should get stiffer penalties, 100%. I think there should be more enforcement, more more crackdowns on the, crime, on the criminals who do this stuff. But there are also ways that consumers can proactively try and help themselves in case someone does rip off your SUV.
0: All right. Let's move to uh, the big story of the day, which uh, the prime minister has commented on what has happened with Bell Media and such and the layoffs and closures there or the selling of properties or such. What are your thoughts and your thoughts on the prime minister's comments?
8: Well, he's like Oscar the Grouch in the garbage can. I don't know. Like, what was that? That was very strange for him to say this is a garbage decision. What kind of language is that? And who is he to say that? Perhaps it's that because he's been giving media companies large subsidies. And it's like with anything else, any kind of corporate welfare. You give out money and then the car company, the car plant closes down. And you say, but we just gave you a billion dollars. How can you close down your factory? Well, because even though you gave us this money, we're not making enough money to keep the lights on. Here's the thing, the media industry has been under transformation, to put it politely, for decades. Mm-hmm. It can't monetize itself the way it was. And so shareholders say, We're not getting our return and we want you to, you know, fix this. That's what happens. So for him to make that comment, I thought was, well, you know, you do you want to quit your job and run Bell Media instead? Maybe you should. There's an idea. <laughs>
0: uh, your thoughts on where the media is now. And um, in, in the future, what are your thoughts of, of where this is going?
8: Well, it's, it's not going to a good place if you value journalism. No, 100 percent. But journalism is never paid. This is what people fail to understand. Newspapers sold yeah. ads. They sold classified ads. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, that's how they made their money. Television monetized through advertising. People today, they, they watch on demand. They don't see the ads you can't get the same return from an online news feed than you get from, um, you know, from selling spots for a different medium, like or selling advertising in a newspaper. So the problem is that it doesn't pay to do this business. So the business has to find a way and look, paywalls, people don't like them, but that honestly is the way I think paywalls and pay-per-view for online content is a way to do it. And people are exploring those options and, You know, but at the end of the day, um, it has to make money. So that's what has to be a way found for news to make money. And right now, there's too much free news out there. Everything's free, right? You get everyone's a journalist. Everyone's publishing stuff for free, uh, and putting a banner out on their website. And so it's a different it's a different market. And to say you're gonna just throw money at the problem, it's not gonna work.
0: Tasha Kyrton with us, author and public affairs consultant, solving everything from the car theft issue to media. Uh, Tasha, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
8: Thanks so much, Scott. Have a good evening.
0: A lot of chatter this week about car theft. Uh, Obviously, there was a uh, summit in Ottawa talking specifically about that. Uh, Insurance Bureau, um, RCMP saying we've got a crisis on our hands As uh, Canada, a source nation for auto theft. Uh, To talk more about all of this, David Adams with us, president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada and here now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thanks for having me. What is the Global Automakers of Canada?
9: The Global Automakers of Canada is a national trade association representing 15 uh, international automakers in the Canadian market, and those 15 automakers have uh, 25 different brands they represent. So really, uh, any vehicle that you see on the road, with the exception of uh, Ford, GM, or Chrysler vehicles, uh, those would all be our, our member vehicles.
0: You were at the summit, I understand, and spoke at that. What was your message here?
9: well our, our message uh was one of optimism going in uh the summit is something that we had been uh, advocating for with government for about a year and a half now uh because the problem of vehicle theft is uh is multifaceted there's a number of different parties that have a you know piece of the problem so the the main first step was getting everybody together including the federal government to uh, sit around the table and try and hash out some of the solutions but our fundamental message i think is one that uh if we're going to address the issue of auto theft then we really need to look at uh frankly cutting off the supply of vehicles and right now the supply of vehicles is uh heading out of uh, canada through the port of montreal at uh, a rate that um, is, uh, is, is frankly porous from a, a perspective of the port. And it's something from our perspective that we we need to try and do a better job of containing. And our thought is, is that if we can cut off the supply of vehicles that are heading overseas to ever overseas market, then there'll be no, uh, actually we're never gonna eliminate auto theft, but there will be a reduced demand for those vehicles, uh, so theft within Canada. We hear
0: that in many situations, Canada's ground zero for this, a source nation of. Why easier here than other places? The cars that we're buying and selling are the same in in North America. So why is Canada being a target more than, say, others?
9: Well, you you make a good point. Um, Frankly, the vehicles are the same on both sides of the border. And uh, Mm -hmm. from our perspective, the reality is then theft has gone up right across Canada, but gone up uh, to very high degrees, uh, 50% in Ontario, I think around 60% in Quebec uh, year over year, simply because of proximity to the Port of Montreal. So an easy way to get the vehicles out of Canada. Um, But the reality is that, uh, you know, as you say, uh, vehicles are the same on both sides of the border, yet uh, our rate of theft in Canada per 100,000 vehicles is about double that of, of the United States.
0: So is this a law enforcement issue or specifically protecting the borders, x-ray, that sort of thing, more uh, mm-hmm. c- accountability of what's going and coming?
9: Yeah, it's it's a multifaceted uh, problem, actually. So all of those things, uh, there are problems yeah. at the uh, at the port in terms of being able to do a better job of uh, of inspecting and in fairness to the port. You know, their main mandate is to operate the port uh, efficiently and effectively, and and be frankly more concerned about what's coming into the country than what's going out of the country. But the 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 CBSA at the port can do a better job, and, uh, and I know the public safety minister provided some funds uh, just in advance of the summit to help facilitate that. But then, you know, to your point uh, as well, law. And Excuse me. Law enforcement has a significant role to play in this effort as well, and we've been uh, working hand in hand with our law enforcement partners. Uh, but they they are under resourced too. They need the resources uh, to be able to uh, to interdict uh, criminals when uh, when vehicles have been stolen, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Everybody would love to have the police um, focusing their resources on, on something other than stolen vehicles, but the reality is that this has become a, a major crisis in Canadian society today, and it's, uh, it's moved beyond just property theft to um, incidences of uh, carjackings and, and home invasions as well.
0: Um obviously as you said this is a multifaceted problem uh, we keep hearing though that technology makes this so easy now what responsibility do car makers automakers have in this discussion of of making it harder to steal a car
9: yeah i mean automakers have a a obligation to their customer to put a product on the road which, which they which they think they're doing that that is going to meet the consumer's needs and uh, is going to provide them with uh with every benefit that they would want from making the purchase that uh, that they're undertaking uh the reality is going back to our, our previous point that uh canada has actually had an immobilizer standard in effect since 2007 whereas the the united states is not so you know the fact that our rates of theft in canada are twice as much as those in the united states uh increase rather twice as much as that in the united states Suggest to us that it's not just a technology. Now, that's not to deflect away from the uh, yeah. from the issue. I think the reality is is that um, everybody, I think, is aware of the top ten stolen vehicle list. If you're a manufacturer and you have uh, one of your vehicles on that top ten stolen vehicle list, Simply from a, a, a pure business sense perspective, it makes sense that you'd be doing anything and everything that you can to undertake efforts to harden the technology security on those vehicles. And whether you're on the top ten list or not, uh, I can say with some degree of confidence that all of my members, whether there's there's an old immobilizer standard or not, uh, have continued to upgrade and harden the security systems on their vehicles. I guess the real challenge at the end of the day is it's a little bit like whack a mole. You know, if you fix one uh, area on the vehicle, then uh, the, the, let's not kid ourselves, we're not dealing with neighborhood kids stealing uh, vehicles. It's uh, organized crime, well financed, highly sophisticated, technically savvy. And the reality is, is that, um, you know, the, these folks will eventually find another way to, uh, you know, to interrogate the vehicle, and uh, and let's face it, it's on wheels, it's mobile. Um, if the incentive is lucrative enough, which it seems to be for stolen vehicles, thieves are going to find a way to uh, to take those vehicles.
0: Uh, you bring up a valid point, though, David, in the sense that, you know, you got the same car in different countries, yet the rates are much higher here. So clearly, it's not just the car. <laughs> you know, why are the rates so much higher here for the same vehicle than they are in other parts of the of the world or even the United States? Mm-hmm.
9: Yeah, and uh, the rates vary across the country. Uh, auto theft yeah. has increased right across the country, but it is certainly sure. more prominent in uh, in the um, Southern Ontario and Quebec region, and and increasingly so on the, the East Coast. And again, we would suggest that that's, uh, that's proximity to ports to be able to ship vehicles uh, overseas and where they can command, you know, sometimes two or three times the value of the vehicle in the Canadian marketplace and uh and then these vehicles when they are shipped overseas are using to, uh, used in in other crimes or potentially terrorist activities uh overseas and then you know conversely they're also funding the uh the things that we don't want coming into the country which are, are guns and drugs so uh, as I said, this is a multifaceted problem. Um, we do have a, a challenge uh, at our ports, no question. We need more resources, but uh, money and people aren't necessarily going to solve that problem. We need to become smarter in terms of how we apply technology, whether that's X-ray machines for containers or other sophisticated ways that we can, uh, you know, we can aggressively detect uh, vehicles that are in containers and also moving back up the chain um, preventing these vehicles from actually getting on uh, containers in the in the first place and uh, sometimes that can be a challenge when there are you know jurisdictional issues for instance between different municipalities between uh, uh, private security at rail yards railroad security and municipal police Uh, so all these jurisdiction Issues become a real challenge, and I think that's one of the things that was recognized at the summit uh, yesterday. Is that we we all have to do a better job of uh, communicating with one another, uh, sorting these issues out, so that we can uh, operate uh, from an information uh, you know data set or or base that is uh, is real time, because that's certainly the the pace at which the thieves are operating at.
0: David Adams with us, president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada. David attended and spoke at the Auto Theft Summit that was recently in Ottawa. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. All right, uh, we've heard lots of chatter about what, uh, obviously, the U.S. election coming up, and Donald Trump looks like he's going to be the nomination for uh, the Republican Party. Uh, legal, legal problems aside, so what will that do to Canada-U.S. relations? Uh, a new survey said that uh, three out of four Canadians are concerned it could worsen if Donald Trump gets back in the White House. Let's bring in Jason Opel, associate professor, chair of the Department of History, Classical Studies, McGill University, and here now, Jason. Thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. So, Jason, if uh, let's get right to it. If he gets in, are we in trouble?
10: Uh, I think U.S.-Canadian relations will change for the worse. Um, so I think three out of four Canadians are correct in that respect. Um, but I, I guess I would add to that a, a note of um, optimism in the sense that I don't think the changes or worsening will be so much on, like, a really powerful kind of um, policy side but rather on um, some kind of daily day-to-day kind of interactions that are mostly going to be the provenance of the responsibility of government officials.
0: As we so often hear, isn't the relationship between Canada and the U S bigger than any leader or in this case, Donald Trump?
10: Yeah. So, I mean, the really important thing, the background here is that, you know, it's very important to to just remember that there is zero uh, close to zero hostility among the American people towards, Canada there there you hear these noises occasionally about the northern border being too porous or whatever but there's very little traction to it so i mean is coming from a, a baseline of a lot of goodwill and mutual interest there are tensions that are not exclusive to Donald Trump relating to protectionism which is definitely you know definitely on the rise in the United States but that's under Biden as well um these things can be worked out we're not talking about trade wars we're talking about negotiations of things um I think the things that might change were Trump to be reelected, and after yesterday, that is a distinct possibility. Mm. Um, then it'll be things like the, you know, um, interaction at the border being a little more difficult, unusual requests from the American side, unpredictable changes in very small um, practices and policies, stuff like that—not big, huge, big-picture issues.
0: Should Justin Trudeau uh, be negatively referring to or commenting on or using Donald Trump in his campaign uh, for the next election? Does that affect anything?
10: I, For Mr. Trudeau himself, I suppose it would, I suppose it helps him somewhat politically just to draw a distinction between himself and Mr. Trump, given that Mr. Trump is not nearly as popular in Canada as he is in the United States. Um, I don't think... Um, I don't think that that'll have much effect on what Trump does or doesn't do because he's so Trump is so focused on the grievances from the last uh, election. Um, But really, what's really striking is I think yesterday was the worst day of Biden's political, long political career. (laughs)
1: Hmm.
10: And um, it's a distinct possibility that that Trump will return to power. Um, And that would mean a lot of things in the United States. It would mean not, you know, it, it would be much less uh, of a, of dramatic in Canada. I think it would really just be a lot of headaches for the um, official federal officials because it would be more unpredictable uh, what, what Trump does because he himself is so kind of irascible and moves from place to place so quickly.
0: Does it matter who's the prime minister uh, during this uh, uh, term with Donald Trump? Does it matter if it's Justin Trudeau, Pierre Paglia, even Jagmeet Singh? Does the leader make a difference here?
10: Uh, you know, there is definitely a way where attitudes towards um, immigration in general and attitudes towards international relations and uh, Ukraine and, and Israel, uh, which obviously vary among the various Canadian leaders, that kind of stuff, uh, you know, would definitely affect the way that Trump reacts to uh, Canadian leaders. Um, but my overall kind of take on this would be that, you know, there's just Trump has a lot of targets. Canada is not one of them, and it's hmm. important to keep that in mind. and important to, to realize that um, Canada has a lot to kind of fall back on, or just you know, just really not to be not to worry about. Um, even if Trump occasionally sends these texts or tweets that are that are you know destabilizing and concerning, um, he's not running for president to to get back at Canada. He's running for president to get back hmm. uh, at everyone else.
0: <laughs> Everyone, Yeah, really. We're just low enough to stay under the radar. All right. Canada-U.S. relations under Trump. Jason Opel with his associate professor, chair of the Department of History and Classical Studies, McGill University. Jason, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer customer to have the last word this one from Mr Lowe. I remember growing up being a loyal listener to the nightly news anchored by Tom charrington Harvey Kirk or Lloyd Robertson I even delivered the spectator in grade school we had nightly newscasts we were that were informative and made us think newspapers that were a joy to read what happened is it all technology's fault or not preparing for it
1: keep right except to pass <laughs>